This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. I don't have to have a super interesting life. I just have to try to be as honest as I can about what's going on and uh, as attentive as I can to what's going on and throw those lines out and and trust that they're going to catch and somebody out there is going to go, I thought I was the only one. Everybody and welcome to The Calling. I'm Richard Clark, an editor for Christianity Today. Andrew Peterson has quite the following. He has thousands of Twitter followers. There's plenty of people who buy his music. And he's managed to surround himself with a community of creatives. Many of those creatives join him every year for a Christmas tour based on his Christmas album, Behold the Lamb of God, which is an event Peterson uses largely to spotlight new and upcoming, even underrated artists that he happens to appreciate and thinks deserve a little more spotlight. But based on some things he says in this uh, conversation I had, Peterson's still struggling somewhat with a fear that um, when people really get to know him, they'll be underwhelmed at best. I don't know about you, but I can relate to that. As human beings, we do a lot to guard our real selves, to keep our true instincts and thoughts away from public view. We project them onto someone else, or we just remain silent about the darker, harder struggles we experience. But to me, Andrew's whole career appears to be a discipline he's undertaken to combat this impulse. His music isn't just deeply personal. It's almost autobiographically invasive. Andrew delves deep into his own struggle and need. Still, his songs don't feel dark, necessarily, because they major on the grace of God. It's a pretty masterful tightrope walk, to be honest. Peterson might very well fear you'll leave this interview disappointed, but if you're like me, by the end of this conversation, I think you'll feel more affinity towards the person himself. Before we get to that, some housekeeping very quickly. Two people have won a copy of Amina Brown's new book, How to Fix a Broken Record, simply by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Music. Uh, CJWVUNUT2012. Um, and Lore Wade, both of you have won a copy. So all I need you to do is send an email to rclark at christianitytoday.com with your name and address. We'll send them right off to you. Uh, this uh, podcast is brought to you, of course, as usual, by Christianity Today magazine, which offers redemptive yet honest coverage of the people, events, and ideas shaping the church and culture. As a subscriber, each year you'll get 10 award-winning print issues, which are getting better by the month. That's just how it works. I don't know. This is my observation, at least. Tablet and PDF editions of each issue, full web access to ChristianityDay.com, and online archives dating back to 1950s. One of the crazy things about the full web access to ChristianityToday.com is that it includes things that, uh, that are more than what you think of immediately when you think of Christianity Today magazine. It's stuff like books and culture, Christian history, uh, the, the behemoth. If you remember that, that no longer does new stuff, but we have archives that you can just sort of like read through really great science writing. And then you can read our first issue online. So yeah, go check it out. We've set up a special page that will allow you to get a discounted subscription plus a bonus download created especially for our podcast listeners. You can only get that deal at orderct.com slash the calling. That's orderct.com slash the calling. 
head on over there to subscribe. By subscribing to CT Magazine, you'll be supporting thoughtful, essential journalism and helping us to continue to produce episodes of The Calling every week. So you're a touring musician, so you travel a lot. I do. I mean, it kind of goes in spurts. So um, you spend a lot of time in Nashville then? I try to, yeah. yes. That's my favorite place to be. The uh, last time I went to Nashville, like I've known about Nashville for a while. I lived in mm-hmm. Louisville, Kentucky, so I was kind of close. And I would drive through to get to my hometown in Alabama. The, but the last time I visited was for the Q Conference, and I for some reason discovered the food in Nashville. Oh yeah. There's a lot of good food. I don't know what happened, what changed, but it was like hipsters. It was like, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe that's, that's totally it. What but the crazy thing is I discovered meat and three, which oh, is something yeah. I didn't know was like a genre of food. Uh huh. And yeah. I was like, oh, this is a thing. And I was like really feeling it. Yeah. It was. What about, uh, did you get any hot chicken while you were there? Yes. Okay. Yeah. From that place. Well, there's, the place? there's like two, there's Prince's, there's Pepper Fire, there's, um, uh, and there's the third one. What's the third one? Um, oh goodness. The third one's the most, probably the most popular one. Anyway. I probably got it from the third one. Yeah. I don't think I got it from Prince's, but yeah, it was, I just like, I remember I got it to go and I was eating in my hotel room just for practical reasons. And I was just like, this is a little sad, but. This is amazing. Yeah. It's, I'm really enjoying it. I don't often like sit and just eat and not do anything else, <laughs> but that is what I did in that moment. Mm-hmm. And it was right. satisfying. Well, we always start the podcast with one question and it is this, how would you define your calling? Uh, I usually say that um, I, my, my calling is to try to tell the truth as beautifully as I can. I like that. That's good. There's a dichotomy there. There and not a dichotomy, the tension between the truth and beauty. Not really a tension. Well, there, that's the, not the right word, but it does. It, well, it kind of if I, you can tell the truth in a way that is not helpful. Yeah, and you can you can um, be so interested in making something beautiful that uh, the truth. I mean, some people get really philosophical about this stuff, but in a very practical sense, um, uh, I'm not just interested in trying to make songs that are as pretty as I can or. I really think craft is important and all that kind of stuff, but for whatever reason, I f- I feel have always felt compelled to um, I want I want the listener to know what I mean. Um, I want there to be more than just uh, you know I, w- I want there to be layers to my music or whatever art uh-huh. that my favorite kinds of art are the kind of where you know you don't have to have a PhD to get it right. And at the same time, somebody. Um, can listen to it or watch a movie or read a book five times and only then begin to discover the layers in it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, and I'm not saying I've m- mastered that at all or that I even know what I'm doing, but that's what I'm shooting for. Yeah. So try to try to make it so that um, whatever it is that I've got my that I'm working on, um, whether it's books or music or the film or whatever, that mm-hmm. I want people to have like an immediate. I want it to be effective. Yeah. And useful. Right. Uh, right out of the gate, and and then. Also to be beautiful and also to be uh, something that is worth paying attention to over the long haul. What are, what are the things that you've found that have made that have made your art useful? Like what are the sort of go-to principles? Well, wow. I, I haven't, don't know that I've ever really articulated that before, but the art as self-indulgence is just kind of like uh, a clinging symbol to You're me. not about just like, this is how I feel. Right, kind of unless I'm telling you how I feel because I think that it it will, uh, it it is a way of 
enlightening your own story or, mm-hmm. or building an empathy bridge or whatever it may be. Um, so uh, keeping the constant listener in your in your head while you're writing a song or with the book, The Constant Reader, like constantly remembering that the, the art is not... Walt Wongren argues that art is not really art until someone has received it. It's just kind of like a tree falling in the forest, not making a sound until, there, until somebody has received and interacted with it. Mm-hmm. That's when the thing is complete. Um, and so... So I don't know. I've just, I don't know. I'm, I'm saying, I'm not saying this is the only way to do it. I'm just saying this is what I feel called to do mm-hmm. is that, um, that I really want there to be a conversation, uh, like some kind of, um, moment where the listener realizes that he or she, um, is less alone. I was listening to your music. I've been really heavily listening to your music like the last month. Like I haven't really listened before that, but I started listening to it in the last month. And one of the things that I noticed was there is a an unspoken reality behind a lot of the stuff you're writing by which i mean like you you're not saying things like i am going through a really hard time right now i'm miserable i sometimes hate myself but there are songs that imply that do you know what i mean sure like the song be kind to yourself says a lot about what you struggle with mm-hmm. a lot of your music says a lot inherently about what what you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. So in a way it's very like truthful and self-disclosing, mm-hmm. you know? Um I'm how much of that is intentional? Like is that something that you're trying to do? Yeah, I think so. And I I I, I modeled it at, part of part of the reason that it, it, I there's two people, uh Rich Mullins and Frederick Beekner, mm-hmm. uh, both of whom um Rich Mullins is kind of the reason I got into this whole thing. Um, sure. I uh, was a kind of a smart alecky 19-year-old who was into hair metal and um, <laughs> in a rock band. And I, when I encountered his music, and uh, it just changed my whole life. Huh. And, and what I loved about his music was this combination of honesty, truth, and beauty. It was like he was telling the truth. His, his songs were like kind of steeped in strip, scripture. Yeah. They felt like true to me um that he was uh a poet you know uh-huh. so the, the there was a um an excellence of craft but he was also very honest mm-hmm. and i think that if you were to remove honesty and you were just had the truth and beauty thing you would have like hymns um but when you add honesty to the thing you've got somebody telling their story the grit of their story mixed in with all that kind of that storm um it just got my attention in a huge way so i've always tried to do that just yeah. thinking okay well um, the songs that I love most were the ones where they were the most vulnerable. Um, and then, so the other part of that was Beekner later on when I started, uh, uh, when I was doing music and um, also happened to be when my life kind of fell apart and I began feeling real, really the depth of my own weakness. Mm. And uh, What was happening during that time? It was, it was a 22 or 3-year-old uh, guy who was... New, relatively new to Nashville, and uh, um, I went from my first record being doing really, really well, and uh, you know, big radio hit and all that kind of stuff, to my my sophomore release coming out on nine eleven. Wow! And, and so, uh, so everything hinges, you know, in the in a career on like, oh, the sophomore release is a big thing. Uh, it's like, are you going to stick around for a while or not? So I was on the road with with a probably six month old baby. 
my sweet wife, um, in an RV traveling the country nine months out of the year, working really hard. And then that happened. And uh, like that album, you still can't even find it on iTunes. So I'm assuming it wasn't one of those albums that was like, this is the this is like prescient almost. Like some, I feel like oh. there was some category of art that really thrived because of 9-11, like as an yeah. accident. Yeah, mine was not like that. That was not like, that? No. Um, I mean, there was a sense in which, uh, you know, the song still applied. Uh -huh. know, but no, there was not none of that. It was just, it just uh. stunk. And it was, it, you know, and it's complicated to talk about it because I don't, I don't want right. to be like, oh, my life is so hard. I was not in... New York City when that happened. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? So well, that's well, that's part of the awkwardness of that moment is like you mm -hmm. want to be sad about your thing, <laughs> right. but you kind of feel like you're not allowed to be. Right. Yeah. That's kind of how it felt. And so we were out on the road and didn't have the money to not tour. Uh huh. But we had so we had to be on the road, but nobody was coming to the shows because the, a they didn't know the record had come out because the world changed and mm -hmm. people weren't paying attention to that. But b they were afraid. People like in the I don't know if you remember that, but like. Um, and like we had a show that night and it was like there were 20 people there because huh. people were afraid of going to like public places and wow it, so it was just a creepy time and so all that was happening and um, I remember my I became way too obsessed with how the record was doing mm -hmm. you know I would call my manager every day how did that do how did we <laughs> did we get any ads on radio this week oh no blah 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 so I had kind of like gotten a little too wrapped up in and part of it was because I was just scared. I was worried for my family. I was like, I don't know how I'm going to take care of them if, if I can't do this music thing. Um, so that that's one of many things that was going on. But it was just a, a very complicated season where um, I remember hearing a sermon about King David, uh, the passage in one of the first and seconds in the Old Testament. I can't remember which one. Mm -hmm. Where King David's an old man and he takes a census of um, Israel and uh, God gets really mad that he that he took a head count of his army. Yeah. And it's a little mysterious when you read it. You're kind of like, why was God so angry? He sent a plague on all the people. David had to choose between two different punishments or whatever. And uh, and somebody pointed out, and maybe it says this in the in scripture, I can't remember, but uh, that it seems to be that God was um, um, upset that David was um, taking stock of of his kingdom as if he was the one who had built it. It was like David had lost track of the fact that this was all God's doing. And it was none of David's business, really, how big his army was, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, I, and I remember being really convicted when I read that story and heard it interpreted that way that, like, um, it's none of my business how many records I've sold or, you know, how many ads I got on radio. So I called my manager and said, stop telling me. Like, mm. I don't, I don't want to know. So to this day, I still don't know how many records I've sold or how, how an album is doing. Wow. Um, and that was just a way of, uh, it's, it's not because I'm so holy, it's because I'm so weak. It's because I'm like, I know what I'll do with that information. I'll obsess over it and I'll, I'll let it, you know, I'll use it as some weird, or the, the enemy will use it as a way to get inside my heart. Uh -huh. So um, a lot of those kinds of things were happening. And, uh, and so back to circle back around, that was when I encountered Frederick Buechner. Sure. Um, who, um, you know, I don't agree with him completely theolo theologically, but he's an amazing writer and taught me so much. But one of the things that he said, one of his kind of key quotes is uh, the, um, the story of one of us in some measure is the story of us all. And he, he writes about that a lot, this idea that if I can tell my own story well, yeah. if I can be honest and really dig deep, then, then it's you'll find out that there's this bedrock that we all share. Right. And so from an artistic standpoint, that gave me the freedom to try to emulate not just Rich Mullins, but Frederick Buechner and to go, I don't have to have a super interesting life. 
I just have to try to be as honest as I can about what's going on mm-hmm. and uh, as attentive as I can to what's going on and throw those lines out and and trust that they're going to catch and somebody out there is going to go, I thought I was the only one. Yeah. What 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 caused you? So when you met you met Rich Mullins, is that right? I met him twice, like ba- fanboy situations. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What was that? What was the experience of meeting him? Did, was it was that experience what sort of transformed you, or no. was it no? It just was his music. It was just his music. I the I was in uh, living with a buddy of mine when I was nineteen, and he was uh, I was pretty lost at the time. I didn't. I would have told you I was a Christian, but I didn't really know what that meant. Okay. Or, yeah. Um, you know, always had a sense that God was real, but uh-huh. didn't know what to do with any of that. And then he said, hey, you play piano. My buddy said, you play piano. Will you learn this song called If I Stand so I can sing it in church? And so <laughs> I didn't really know the song. Uh, I didn't really know who Rich Mullins was other than Awesome God. <laughs> uh-huh. And uh, and I went into the church building and with the boombox to learn this song, and it just changed me. Wow. Like, the song... Like I said, it was just, there was something in, it wasn't just the fact that the lyric was beautiful, and it is, a really beautiful lyric, um, opens with, uh, there's more that rises in the morning than the sun, there's more that shines in the night than just the moon, there's more than just this fire here that keeps me warm, and a shelter that is larger than this room. And it like got my attention immediately, because I'm kind of a word nerd anyway, and I was like, whoa, that's that's different. But then what I heard was, you know, he was a smoker, most people don't know that, but <laughs> he was he was a mess, you know, uh-huh. and, and yeah. he was a great guy. Like, he, he loved the scripture and loved the church, but he also had his problems. And you could hear it in his voice. You could hear, he wasn't a great singer, and he sang in roughly in my range, and, and I was, I could hear the rasp in his voice, and there was nothing slick about it. Yeah. And uh, suddenly, like, it was like... The idea of being a real songwriter, singer, was taken off the top shelf and put on the bottom shelf for me. And I was uh-huh. like, oh, I think I could do that. Right. And, uh, and you know, I was terrible at it for many, many years. But the, uh, it was kind of like I had been standing in a, in a brambly forest. Mm-hmm. And when I heard that song, I turned around and there was just this path that had been hacked through the brush. So, so one of the th- things that occurred to me is when you mentioned you're in like a hair metal band, <laughs> uh, the first question that came to my mind is why the switch? Cause, and I'm wondering if that was a philosophical thing or, mm. or the genre switch, was that a philosophical thing? Or are you just trying to be like Rich Mullins? <laughs> no, no, no. Like I, I, uh, I oversent like that, like saying I was in a hair metal band is yeah. oversimplifies what was really happening. <laughs> okay. Like I grew up listening to Tom Petty and Leonard Skinner and, um, I'm from that part of the, of Florida. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I, uh, it was that, but then it was also all the glam metal stuff. You know, I listened to that, but then I was always on the hunt for, um, uh, it was, I was on the hunt for whatever moved me. Okay. You know, so that changed depending on whatever I was listening to. Sure. So for years it was Pink Floyd. There's this record called Momentary Lapse of Reason that I, I would lay on my bed with, with the boom, with the box speakers on either side of my head and Mm -hmm. like trip out listening to Pink Floyd music. And then I heard, um, Mark Cohn, the song Walking in Memphis, (laughs) um, on the radio my senior year of high school and went and bought the tape single. Remember those little kiss ca- ca- singles? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and on the other side of it, I think, was a song called um, Silver Thunderbird, which is a masterful song. And that was the beginning of me realizing that there was such thing as a songwriter. I was oh. like, people, there's actually a guy that made this song and told this story. And then that led to James Taylor and Paul Simon and um, Toad the Wet Sprocket. Um, a lot of a lot of stuff, anything that moved me, and so right. I, I was kind of a junkie for for an emotional response in a song. Mm-hmm. So same thing was true of movies. Like if 
like Goonies made me feel a certain way when I was a kid. <laughs> and so yeah. I was always on a hunt for, where's the thing that's going to give me the butterflies like that movie did? Yeah. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, whatever it is. So when I heard Rich's music that, that night, it was like, uh, it was all of it. You know, it was like my childhood in the church. Hmm. It was being a pastor's kid. It was my loneliness. It was right. all of this stuff. Yes. And it was all packed into one song. Yeah. Um, and so the there's a, I don't know if you read, Chesterton, but um, one of the themes in G.K. Chesterton's work um, that shows up is this idea that, like, when he tells his story of coming to Christianity, he he talks about how um, it was realizing that what he was looking for was around him all the time. And one of the illustrations he gives, I think, in Orthodoxy, is like, uh, you know, a fairy tale about a, a boy who grows up on a mountain and he longs to go see a giant one day, mm-hmm. and he leaves home and goes on this quest to find the giant. And when he's far enough away, he turns around and looks and sees that the mountain he'd grown up on was the giant. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what I felt like when I was, when I discovered Rich, I was like all the stuff that I was looking for in music everywhere else, there was a way to do it um, that that told the complete story of my life. You know, not just some weird sequestered part of it yeah. where I was interested in girls and rock and roll. It was like, no, actually there's loneliness and there's... Um, yearning and all that kind of stuff thrown in and Jesus was kind of the center of it all hey everybody I'm just interrupting this uh, episode of the calling to let you know about our other podcast quick to listen quick to listen is our weekly news and analysis show with Morgan Lee and our editor-in-chief Mark Galley you can listen to it every week I highly recommend it it always centers me in terms of what is happening and why. Um, Yeah, it's very good. So check it out. Anyway, back to the conversation. So when did Jesus become the center of it all? Was, well, was that that was was the moment? I mean, really? Yeah, that was that was the moment. And the way though I've described it is that it felt like God reached through the song itself and sure. inside of me and turned on a light switch. Yeah, like and that was the beginning of me kind of like realizing, okay, I'm not. There is a there seems to be a a person at the end of the the ache that I've gotten the loneliness is a is a is an arrow that's pointing toward a person mm, mm-hmm. and so you know it wasn't like it was an over it wasn't some like it didn't feel special that night you know yeah. I mean yeah. when I look back I'm like yeah that was the moment yeah um, all I know all I knew that night was that I was crying huh. I was at the piano and I was crying and and something had changed but you can't really articulate what that thing is. Mm-hmm. Uh, until you look back. And so, uh, but yeah, it was like a month later that uh, my, the guy that I was living with was graduating high school and on his way to Bible college. And um, I was living with his family. And uh, and I called my dad and said, hey, I think I'm going to go to Bible college with, with CJ. Is that cool? You know, and he was so happy because I'd been, you know, touring with a rock band. And uh-huh. Like suddenly wanted to go to Bible college. And so it was almost a went <laughs> on a whim because I didn't know what else to do. And they yeah. did, it was cheap and they didn't have a math requirement. In my Old Testament survey class, um, the uh, my uh, professor did a really good job of pointing out all the moments that Jesus shows up in the Old Testament um, thematically. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, also actually um, in, in a few places, arguably. And so... Uh, Anyway, but it was like he connected the dots. It was like right. I had grown up um, 
I'd grown up in a house where I was memorizing Bible verses and going to church and hearing the Bible stories all the time. And it was like my parents had been stringing lights on a Christmas tree. And that professor was the guy who plugged in the lights. And yeah. so I was sitting there in class and I, and I just, my brain was tingling with the, the beauty of all the interconnectedness of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it geeked me out in the same way that all the books that I had read did. So that, and, and the, the fact that the person of Christ was at the center of all that also I couldn't escape it. How did you expect, when you sort of became aware of your calling, how did you expect it to pan out? Um, wow. Uh, well, I, I, I knew that I wanted to... Uh, I knew what I wanted. Um, sorry I'm like the quote machine right now, but no, uh, another quote that I loved was Frederick Buechner saying, the place God calls you to is the place where you're deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Um, and so my deep gladness was in communicating um, yeah. with songs. And so uh, so I remember feeling this urge to do it, but I also knew I was a terrible songwriter mm -hmm. and I couldn't sing. Um, and my wife uh, talked me into quitting the band that I was in. And she said, you need to go do, we were dating at the time, you need to go do shows. And um okay. I know you want to, yeah. but you're scared to do it because you don't think you can, and which was true. Um, and so I didn't have the, an imagination big enough to picture, I guess, what I'm doing now. Yeah. I think I, I, I would have wanted to do that, but I was just like, yeah, but I'm, I'm an idiot. I don't yeah. know how to do that stuff. Um, so I didn't really picture it a lot. I just knew that um, Rich kind of gave me a paradigm uh -huh. to kind of shoot for. Yeah. And I was like, I'll probably never be able to do it like that, but... That's that's what I would like to do. It's know? funny how get, getting ready to get married puts you on this path of like you gotta you gotta think about what you're doing and why. I feel like for me, like that was the thing where I would I would uh, I would like just be doing stuff because I wanted to, and then all of a sudden it's like no, I've gotta I've gotta think. Why am I doing this? What am I gonna do? long term yeah <clears throat> which is great yeah <laughs> yeah it's kind of it's exactly. kind of like it's kind of yeah it, it it's it's a huge change and that's one one thing with the rich mullins thing where mm -hmm. really quickly there was a breakdown in my ability to like emulate what he was doing because mm. dude was single like andy was huge <laughs> right. wildly successful yeah. you yeah. know what i mean like he had huge radio hits in, in the days when you made lots of money on mm -hmm. him and sure he gave that money away but he also had whatever he needed whenever he wanted it yeah you know yeah um and he didn't have to, he, he could only, he could make whatever choices he wanted. So I got married when I was 20. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and That's Jamie, young. It's pretty young, yeah. Um, it's about as young as it gets, it feels like. <laughs> I highly recommend it. It was great. Um, awesome. I was a sophomore, middle of my sophomore year. Okay. And she was, a, she was it was the middle of her senior year. And um, anyway, yeah, it was, it was great. But, but yes, there was, there was definitely a feeling of don't let my father-in-law down, you know, mm. I promised him I'd take good care of her. <laughs> right. But the other side of that is that she has just this unreasonable faith in me. Huh. And, um, and like right out of the gate, like if I, if I went home today and said, I think we should move to Africa, she wouldn't bat an eye. She would yeah. be like, all right, let's go. And, uh, has this amazing trust, um, in God, not necessarily so much in me, but she's just kind of, uh, w kind of got this like hippie ability to <laughs> go with the flow and be like, yeah, right. let's go do this thing. So she was willing to, to just like move to Nashville on a whim and, mm. and, and babysit while her husband waited tables at the Olive Garden to see if wow. this music thing would work. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson. 
publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Was there ever, was there ever a time when you doubted that you should pursue that calling? Um, no, not really. Um, that I mainly because I'm bad at everything else. Um, yeah. I, I don't, <laughs> I don't really know what I would do if I wasn't doing this. Um, <laughs> I would be really miserable. I mean, I would do what I had to do, I guess, for my family, but, um, from a calling standpoint, it, it's just, it's been the thing that has reset my compass for many, many years. And so but you do do other, th- like the calling you presented. Yes. That's all you're doing. But uh-huh. like specifically, you could music. not do music. It seems like, because you're doing other things, you're writing, uh-huh. you're, you have this thing called the rabbit room that, right. that is kind of like a, what would you call that? I mean, a community. Sure. I guess. Yeah. An experiment in community. An experiment in community. So, um, like, it, there are other things you could do. Did you ever yeah. think maybe not music? Well, last week, yeah. Okay. You know? <laughs> <laughs> what, happened, what happened last week? No, I just, I mean, it's, it's a regular Every week. passing thought. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like, it's well, I should say these days. Like, um, last year I, I was almost ready to quit. Really? I, yeah. I mean, yeah, there, there's been several times over the years when... I've joked with my buddy Ben Shive, who used to tour with me for like twelve years. He toured with me that mm-hmm. he's he's been he's been there when I quit music like five times, <laughs> um, <laughs> and usually I'll I'll be I, you know I'd be so exhausted and and like laying on the floor of some like you know the choir room backstage, yeah, going I can't do this anymore. And he would be like, you haven't slept in thirty six hours, yeah. Don't make this decision when you're tired, and be like, oh, that's right, that's right. Um, so uh, it does; it wears you down. And it's it's the physical to, aspect mostly, like for the me, travel. It, it's being gone from home. Yeah. yeah, I love my community. I love my church. And, and when I'm not, uh, when I'm unplugged from that, and I'm on the road all the time, um, it just really does wear me out. And uh, mm-hmm. and so last year, I, I I counted up that I was gone 180 days. Wow. Yeah, which was a lot more than normal. That is a lot. It just kind of got out of hand a little bit. And so last year I kind of called my manager and said, got to make some changes. I can't keep this up. I'm Uh 43 now, which isn't super old, but like in the music world, it's it's 20, 25 years since I started doing this. I'm just, I get, um, I love it though. You know what I mean? Like I'm really tired until the moment when I'm on the stage and I'm doing the thing. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Um, so but yeah, then, and then the other part of it is like, you know, writing books is another, it, it scratches the same itch, you know? So I love doing that. And that only works when I'm home. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and same thing with the rabbit room. Like it's, there's a lot of stuff that I love doing that also allows me to be at my church and to be a part mm-hmm. of my neighborhood and, uh, and music just constantly pulls you away from it. Mm, yeah. Um, that is something I've been thinking about a lot. Just I've, over the years, I've thought about this because... I don't know. I like music and I'm interested in the church. It's like this seeming, I don't know if disconnect is not the right word, but like there is a tension between a touring Christian musician and this need for church community and life. And I've always wondered how Christian musicians can 
sort of maintain that. I guess it's a similar challenge as a lot of people who travel for their job, but mm-hmm. um, but you're also just like doing these things, like being on stage and leading people in worship in certain ways, and like it's just like a weird thing. Do do you have other ways of of dealing with that as you're on the road? Um. <clears throat> Well, I mean, I just, you know, you try to stay as connected to your family as possible. I have a few mentors that I ha- that are like that I can call at the drop of a hat and cry to on the phone um, if I need it. And uh, you know, little practical ways of staying connected are really helpful. I, I never travel alone. Um, mm-hmm. Not never, but ninety nine percent of the time, there's a guy on the road or a yeah. band that I'm with that helps a ton. Um, and I, I don't know, like I. Uh, Again, like if I didn't feel like I was called to this, I probably wouldn't be doing it. Right. Um, that I, I really feel like uh, I love it so much when it's good. And when it's lame, I just hate it as much as anything you can imagine. You know, <laughs> and like when you're tired or when the shows are really hard or um, I'm missing a track meet or a play that my kids are in at home, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Is That's when I start going, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. This is, I don't know if I should be doing this. And then you get some email from somebody or you talk. I don't know. It, there's, it's, it's a complicated thing. What would you say is like your deepest fear? <laughs> I'll throw that in the Just middle. Just a light question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think, I think the most persistent fear over the course of my life has been that once people knew me, they wouldn't like me very much. Really? Mm-hmm. Has, do you feel like that ever pans out that way? Uh, I, I think. It must have happened at some point, or I wouldn't think that. Interesting. I assume that it must. Um, but High yeah, school or something? I don't know. I don't know. It's just, or maybe it's just like a, a a flaw that I was born with. You know, I don't know. Um, but the, it has. Uh, it is a. Yeah, I mean that's just one of the things that, and music is one of the ways that I. Uh, it's it's a funny tension because. I get to stand on the stage and present myself mm-hmm. in a very safe, there are rules here, yeah. you know what I mean? Yep. I remember Rich Mullen saying, somebody said, wow, you. From when I listen to your records, I think you must be so holy. And he <laughs> said, you're listening to my best 45 minutes over right. the past three years. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm kind of like, yeah, that's actually true. I, I do try to be honest in my songwriting and stuff, but I'm also telling you what I want. I'm revealing what I want to reveal. Um, and so uh, it, on the other side of that, though, is that you know there have been times when I've talked to my wife about like, um, oh, what's an example? Okay, I'll give you an example. The um, um, Aaron Tate is a guy who wrote the uh, all the big Cademan's Call songs back mm. in the day. Mm-hmm. He's one of my dearest friends, and um, and I was listening. To, I like went back and listened to one of the first Cademan's records. It came up on iTunes, and I was like, oh, I'm gonna give this guy a listen uh-huh. for the first time in 15 years, and and it w- held up pretty well. Which one was that? The first, their first big one. Um, is the forty self- acres self-titled, or the one before okay. forty acres? Yeah. yeah. And I was listening to the lyrics, um, and I was just amazed at how honest they were. Like, like the stuff that Aaron was writing about was like gut wrenching stuff, but it was dressed up in a pop song yeah. that he wasn't singing. The other yeah. other guys were singing it. And I called him, um, or maybe I talked to him at a show, and I was just like, "Man, I was listening to to those songs, and like you were really hurting back then." And I'm sorry that I didn't wow. notice it. Yeah, and he got big tears in his eyes, and it was like, "Thanks for saying that, man." And so I think it's easy when you're listening to music to think that the songwriter is dressing stuff up in a poetic device or whatever. And actually, it's just not true. Like I've got a song called "Fool the Fancy Guitar," where it talks about how I've got voices that scream in my head like a siren, fears <laughs> that I feel in the night when I sleep, and uh, 
I remember crying to my wife one time. I'm like, I'm not just saying stuff. Like, yeah. that's actually true. Like, right. I actually do feel these things. Um, they sound nice when they rhyme. <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> you know, and your your voice has a way of making them sound really palatable. <laughs> well, you know thanks. what I mean? Like, um, I it's those are th- that is the thing that's really remarkable about your music. I feel like is is like you're listening to this. It's dark, and some of it's really dark, and. Uh, you're like it's like stuff that my two year two and a half year old son listens to. We feel safe letting him listen to it, <laughs> really but funny. it's not like death metal. Here's you a know? song about depression, little Bobby. Right, <laughs> um, right, right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean th- that's the thing is like it it is it's all in there. So there's this funny like weird tension between yeah. being afraid of being known and also being called to a job that exposes your deepest fears uh-huh. on a regular basis. Um, but but that's what church is for, honestly. That's what huh. marriage is also great for is uh-huh. like Jamie has seen me at my very worst yeah and has abided yeah and so that is like uh, one of the many ways that God has kind of pushed back at that fear that I have mm-hmm. and uh, going be, being a part of a local church at home that or in a community in our neighborhood of people who aren't impressed by what I do you know mm-hmm. they no, I'm just the dude that lives down the street yes. and so um yeah I mean and the thing is like when people are you know, like, oh, I've always wanted to meet you. I'm kind of like, in my mind, I'm thinking, give it five minutes. <laughs> you're not going to be, you're not going to be impressed in five minutes. Uh-huh. Um, I'm, and you know, there's also a letdown that happens. It's like, oh man, I hate to disappoint you, but I'm just some dude, you know? So the the last question I'll ask is the one sure. we ask everyone, which is if you could uh, get into a time machine, go back in time, step out of that time machine and introduce yourself to yourself, what would you say? That, uh, <laughs> I, there's probably like a combination of things that I would say. I would say be faithful. Um, that, that would make, uh, that kind of a life makes the best story. And I would say, um, to believe that God loves you. Uh, the fact that God chose to put on flesh and dwell among us and to em- embody our suffering has for many years been one of the most profound things about Christianity to me. Um, it's the it, no other religion can boast that the God that they worship knows what it's like to be lonely. And um, I don't know. I I have not been able to shake that feeling. And man, Lord, please let me never shake it. Right. You know, like yeah. what I, what I want most is to move through the world, believing that the God of the universe loves me, with a tender, affectionate, um, faithful love. And um, that changes everything about our lives. Yeah. Um, it changes the way I love my wife, changes the way I love my children, changes the way I'm able to talk to you. And so that's what I would, I would want to grab young Andrew and make him listen to those words. So it seems like there was a period where you, especially young Andrew, like had a hard time really believing that. Yeah, I still do. That's the thing. But I think that, that um, growing up in a pretty legalistic situation... Uh-huh feeds that fire i'm still afraid of him sometimes i don't understand him but but if i start there then it it lines up everything else you've been listening to the calling andrew peterson's latest album is called the burning edge of dawn you can find him on twitter at andrew peterson his website is andrew-peterson.com don't forget to rate and review the show on itunes it really helps us a lot the Calling is produced by me, Richard Clark. It's edited by Jonathan Clausen. Theme music by Lee Rosevere, used under Creative Commons 4.0.
This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.